Yeah. And so, so it was a really creative idea. It resulted in a huge number of, of advances that we were able to make and others in the field that were able to make. But, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't useful uh, trying to make it happen. Because, again, it's just like the creativity that we talked about earlier when, you, when you're having free play. When you have something that's so ambitious, that's these kind of transitional or, or frontier um, projects, you have to create things in order to get there. And so in the process of trying to create these, these motors, we created all these, other, all these other machines and tools and all these other things that, that people around the world are using now. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. Skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today, uh, although he's wearing a coat, is in beautiful Davis, California. He is the head of the Functional Molecular Biology Lab and a professor at UC Davis. He has his PhD in physiology. Um, and lots and lots of research papers to his name. Welcome to the show, Keith Barr. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I didn't know you were going to do a, a YouTube video of it, or else I probably would have hit the hit the <laughs> the down jacket that I'm wearing when it's like seventy degrees outside. But yeah, it's, it's okay. Hey, you know, it it, it you know kind of adds to the uh, the mystery of what's happening at Davis. Why you're in, in a coat when it's seventy degrees yeah. outside? Why is a Canadian wearing a coat while he's in California? That's just <laughs> not good. All yeah, right. I mean, like, doesn't that come like inborn where you're, you know, you're, you're born in Canada, you never need a coat, you can just go outside at any temperature and be fine? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Oh, well, so much for that theory. Um, so <laughs> I, I've kind of listened to various interviews you've done. You've done, you know, several different podcasts, and I you know, listened to one of your lectures I think you gave last year. Um, but I haven't quite figured out what you did growing up did you play hockey like a typical canadian or or what kind of like sport background did you have growing up yeah so so i did not play hockey i was one of the rare canadians who didn't um we're now a growing number of canadians who play basketball um so so i played basketball for years and years um i got up probably over a thousand shots every day and and did a lot of work um to try and to try and get really good at it and so, you know, had some success, but it was kind of mediocre success. So, okay. But then, of course, I went to the University of Michigan as an undergraduate. And when I, the year that I went there, I was going to, you know, the plan was to try out for the team and to make the team and all of, yeah, that team went on to win the national championship that year. So okay. it was a little difficult. And one of the guys that, uh, would I, that I was there with was a guy named Eric Riley. And, and we would go to the gym and, and we'd play together. And I'd be like, yeah, I got about the same kind of skill level as this guy. Mm -hmm. he, but he's seven foot two. So I don't think I'm going to do quite as well. So, yeah. A little bit. How tall are you? I'm six two, but that's not really yeah. tall enough. Yeah. For much of anything. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a tough range. It's you I'm just trying to think you really kind of be a little bit shorter for I'll say the average like professional runner. If you went the opposite direction, kind of went into sports like I do. And then, yeah, basketball you need to be a little bit taller, but you're, but you're in this, in this kind of land where you are, I, I think I, by general measures are 
tall. You know, it's not like. Yeah. So I'm tall enough so that I have to play like forward when I play pickup basketball. Right. But I was a point guard. So and that's about what I should be given my height. So. Yeah. So it, it is a very difficult thing to 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 play at a, at a variety of different levels. But yeah, so so I did that. I also played volleyball in college because, you know, uh, growing up in Canada, we had outstanding physical education and I had a great I had a great PE teacher who had played uh, as a national team um, uh, player for for the Czech Republic or for Czechoslovakia, as it was called at that time. Um, he was a Czech national volleyball player. So he trained us extraordinarily well in gym for for playing volleyball. So even though I didn't really play that too much, I was able to jump onto a college team because he had trained us that well. Was that was that a club team or was that actually? Yeah, it was it was a club team, but okay, still it was. It was good. We played a lot of we we played against a lot of uh, a lot of varsity teams. Oops. And so so the the varsity teams would you know we would still be able to be competitive with them. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, I was like I you know I hadn't really thought about um, men's volleyball. I mean obviously it, it, it's played all over the place. Um, funny enough, my uh, guest from two weeks ago. Uh, Will McGough. He I, he had a, wrote a book. I had him on talking about the book, and he also played club um, in college. And I was like, I yeah. didn't even have it in my mind that that was you know a thing going on. Like that's one of those interesting things where the in the U.S. women's volleyball is is the key sport, right? And there's clubs from from when you're ten years old, and yet the women aren't the ones who win gold medals. The the U.S. men actually are better at winning medals historically than the women are even though they don't actually have a program and that really tells you something about you know kind of elite sport is that if you actually don't have as much structured time you probably create creativity and you you improve your you improve your skills by creating them yourself rather than doing what the coaches tell you and i think that's one of the reasons why the men's team actually at the national level tends to do extraordinarily well given that there's no infrastructure in the u.s really for men's volleyball so is it a matter of just like throw the couch out the window get together and play that's the ideal thing to do when you're a kid (laughs) okay well yeah Yeah. the worst thing in the world is is to have like grown-ups there if you're if you're playing sport as a kid because you're gonna do things and they'll tell you what to do and and then you start doing what they tell you instead of mm-hmm. figuring out a different way of doing it and coming up with creative ways to do things that are then going to make you exceptional once you get, you know, a little bit older. Yeah. See, I've th- I know I've thought about that in terms of like injury risk, you know, thinking about not not starting kids too early on weights and, and those kind of things. But I hadn't thought about it in terms of skill acquisition. So, I mean, is there a... Is there like a preferred age where you say, okay, now you're old enough to need a coach or, or for a coach to, you know, progress your skills? Uh, I, you know, if you, if you talk to David Epstein and, and you read his book range, he would say that the more diverse things you do, the better you're going to be in the long run. Okay. Uh, and that's certainly true for sport. So, so we know that, you know, most of the most creative players, like if you look at a Messi or you look at all of these guys, yeah, they they were in a club from about 11-ish. But before that, they were playing just on the street, wherever mm-hmm. they could. And most of the play that they would do, even though they were on a club team, would be out in the street or in a park with nobody watching. They could mm-hmm. try a lot of things. 
you know, and you, you go to South America and they say that the worst thing that's happened to their football skills is that they've put in a bunch of really nice parks that have like a, a, a flat astroturf or okay. you know, artificial turf surface. Because in the old days, they used to have bumps and all of this stuff and you had to get good on a really bad surface. So you had yeah. to be even better to handle to handle the ball. And so all of those things really kind of indicate that for your creative later end, the long view, where you're going to get to as your maximum, mm-hmm. the more the more time you have as as kind of free play and as create creative time where you're encouraged to try crazy things, the the better you're going to your upside is going to be. So I feel like that's a really good example of um, whenever my coach gives me kind of also I'll call it <laughs> interesting workouts. He always says diverse workouts make diverse athletes like the whole, the whole key is not necessarily doing this exact thing, but let's do something a little bit different uh, and it's a little more stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. Cause after, after a certain period of time, the tissues of the body need a different stimulus in order to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to jump a little bit into your research. It seems like you kind of made uh, a transition over time. I watched, I, I believe, was you doing a TEDx talk at, at Davis talking about um, exercise and happiness. Oh, yeah. um, and then now um, the more recent stuff, you know, we're talking about uh, tendon strength and, and um, kind of more focused, it seems like, into, um, I'll say, functional molecular biology. But, but um I'll call it more technical rather than more easily adapted to like pop culture. H- how do you get from kind of where you were that was, I think that was like 2011 to, to where you are now. What's- yeah. So, so the lecture I gave the TEDx lecture, that was just something that's that basically is a general physical activity component. Okay. So how do you, how do you live the longest, happiest life possible? And, and that was that's you know, there's this idea that, that exercise is going to do a lot of things to promote that. Um, but my PhD was in muscle physiology. I was a molecular biologist and in, in really coming up with the molecular mechanism underlying why a muscle grows in response to lifting weights. Okay. And then, then, I, then I went on to, to, to work with John Halsey and discovered um, a specific gene that was activated by endurance exercise that basically causes all of the endurance adaptation. So a gene called PGC1-alpha. I was a for I was able to to show that um, the PG one alpha was activated when you did endurance exercise, and that you actually produced a smaller version of it that was more active, and and that a lot of what you get when you do endurance adaptations or when you do endurance training and your body adapts to that is is actually that you um, you turn on this gene and it increases your mitochondrial mass, it increases your fat oxidation capacity. And it increases your ability to, or the number of capillaries within the muscle. So a lot of these things that you would consider endurance adaptations are down to that one gene. So, so most of the time I had been working in muscle, trying to really understand how muscle is responding to exercise, nutrition, and age. Mm-hmm. And then what we started doing at a certain point, I went uh, to a postdoc with a with this incredibly smart guy named Bob Dennis at the University of Michigan. And what he was doing was engineering muscles. So we, we make muscles in a dish. And what we had discovered is that every, and the reason that we were doing this is because we wanted to build machines that had muscles as the motors for the machine. 
And what we, what we had discovered is that whenever you attach a muscle to a machine, it would always fail at the attachment between the muscle and the machine. Okay. You would suture it on, you'd sew it on, and then that would be where the muscle would tear off. And so we decided that in order to really build a, a machine that used muscles, you had to have that transitional tissue, the tendon. And so we started looking at to, into kind of what, what, were the, what was the physiology of tendon and, and what was its role and how did it function to protect muscle from injury? And so, so, you know, and over the years, we've still been working, we're still working on molecular mechanisms underlying a lot of the muscle responses to exercise, nutrition, and age. But we've started to pay more and more attention to tendons and ligaments and, and fascia because what we're realizing is that these tissues are as important or more important for performance because those are the tissues that are going to determine whether you are healthy or injured. And if you're healthy and you can train more, mm -hmm. the likelihood of you performing at a high level is higher. Okay. And so for us, that, those are the key things. Um, as we kind of go through this, just pretend that I'm a freshman, essentially. I'm doing my best to, like, digest all your stuff. But obviously, like, you can speak at this uh, a much higher level than me. So okay. I'll try my best to ask, uh, you know, purposeful questions here. Um, so I want to back up just a little bit. So. Sure. What was the what was the purpose of of trying to make a machine with muscles? Is that in the sense of we can't find a a better mechanism to operate? I'll, I'll say like the future of robotics, or, or or you know what was the the point of that? Essentially, some of that some of that was actually funded by the the Department of Defense, and, and okay. with the idea that if you were going to do long term space flight or you're doing really long mo uh, missions or voyages, what you would do is you would want to have a machine that could fix itself. Okay. And muscle, if if there's any damage, it can self-regenerate or it can self-repair. Okay. And so the idea was to 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 generate something that could be a, a self-regulating, self-repairing mm -hmm. uh, motor that could they could power these long-term space flights. And, it, and again, part of what... Um, grant funding is 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 there for is to really open up completely incredibly unimaginable areas right because nobody would ever think of oh let's just let's just power these spaceships with mu muscles not necessarily something most people would think of but somebody had this idea that well if we could do it then we'd have basically um, a, a machine that could could basically work forever and all right. we'd have to do is supply it with energy yeah and so, so it was a really creative idea. It resulted in a huge number of, of advances that we were able to make and others in the field that were able to make. But, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't useful uh, trying to make it happen. Because, again, it's just like the creativity that we talked about earlier when, you, when you're having free play. Mm -hmm. When you have something that's so ambitious that's these kind of transitional or, or frontier um, projects, you have to create things in order to get there. And so in the process of trying to create these, these motors, we created all these other, all these other machines and tools and all these other things that, that people around the world are using now. Yeah. Well, it seems like sometimes uh, from the various kind of um, professors and people doing research I've spoken to, oftentimes, you kind of go down a rabbit hole, um, and then that will be the genesis of 
you know, maybe even the next 10 years of somebody's research, because they'll say, oh, but wait, well, what about this problem within this problem? And then it, you know, kind of spawns off, you know, on a whole other path. Um, I, I think I saw, please correct me, but that you're, you have or are working on trying to like recreate tendons for, mm-hmm. for people. Did that, was yeah. that kind of a, a so we have, off from we, there? We have, um, so we've engineered ligaments and that was, that was spun off from the, from the muscle work. Okay. Cause when you're trying to, when you're trying to, um, attach a muscle to a machine, you need to have something like a tendon or a ligament. Right. So, so rather than start with a tendon, which is a bone tendon and a muscle, which so three tissues, we started with a bone, a tendon and a bone, which is a ligament, which is only two tissues. So it was a little bit easier. Right. And so we've been engineering ligaments now for, for probably about you know, 15 years. And so they're super cool tissues because, and they have given us a huge amount of information as to everything from nutrition, loading, all of these types of things we've learned from having made ligaments in a dish that we can now have complete control over. So I can take blood out of your body um, after you've done a certain exercise or after you've eaten a certain meal, and I can put it, I can isolate the serum and put it into our engineered ligaments. And I can tell you in, in a week's time whether what you ate or what you did is going to make your tendons and ligaments bigger, stronger, and more resilient. Okay. So we've what, got a huge number of tools now. What are those uh, the, the artificial tendons created out of? Is, is it the same kind of cellular structure or is it yeah, a so, different material? So these, are, these are human ligaments. So okay. basically what we do is we take uh, – so we're in Davis. We're about uh, we're about an hour and a half from Lake Tahoe. Mm-hmm. World class skiing. So about this time of year, people are getting all excited. They're going up and skiing. They're going to come down the hill with a ruptured ACL. They're going to go to our medical center and get it replaced. And as they're getting it replaced, we get the remnant of the tissue. Okay. And so that remnant of the tissue has the human ACL fibroblasts, which are dedicated cells that are the cells that make the ligament. Okay. So we then just take away all of the, the collagen, the protein there, isolate the cells, and now we can use those cells to make ligaments in our, in our laboratory. And so from a single individual, we can make um, about a thousand engineered ligaments. Okay. So this is a kind of a pure personal curiosity, but how do you, um, how, like, how does that tissue get stored or does it have a shelf life or like, how does that aspect work? Yeah. So, so the... So we've taken, we take, we, we normally will take our tissue and the same day we'll digest the, it down and we'll isolate the cells and the yeah. cells will start growing that day. Yeah. So they'll attach to a dish and grow. Um, we've also done it from cadaveric tissue. So from, from people who have passed away, mm-hmm. they've, they've donated their body to science. And as part of that, they get, so their tendons and ligaments will get put into a media and we've been able to isolate um, functional cells from from ligaments from people who were, had been dead for 45 days. So the cells within your tendons and ligaments, they're not really metabolically highly active. They're, they can be kept alive relatively easily. Once we have the cells, then what we do is we freeze those cells down in liquid nitrogen in a special solution that protects them from damage. And then anytime we want to use a vial of those cells, we just thaw them out and we start growing them again. Okay. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's effectively, I'll say an almost indefinite period of time that you have those for use. Yeah, pretty much. As long as, as long as they stay at, you know, minus 180 degrees. Right. 
um, in liquid nitrogen, we'll be able to use them. If they if there are fluctuations in temperature, the the cells deteriorate. Okay. Um, before we get too far into your research, I, I did want to ask you. Um, I so I often talk to people who are doing things that don't necessarily have immediately practical use. I've, I've talked to a, a, several different people that are doing um, work on the gut microbiome, and it's kind of more research phase rather than you know functional use phase. Um, why did you? decide to do something that's more like functional based versus just say, you know, man's search for knowledge. Right. So, so because, because I was a mediocre athlete, I wanted to know <laughs> why I was mediocre. A lot of people in exercise physiology started out as good athletes. Okay. You know, like we're good athletes. We're not great athletes. We wanted to be great athletes. So we're trying to figure out why we weren't great athletes. Okay. And so, you know, I started, I also was a strength coach uh, at Michigan. So, and we would put the football players onto these strength programs. You would see some just, they would blow up by like a balloon and they would get hugely strong and other guys would do the same training pro program, but they would have no change in their, no visible change in muscle mass and, and their strength wouldn't go up dramatically. And mm -hmm. so part of the question that I had was why are all these things happening? What is it about our bodies that allow us to adapt to these these stimuli, these nutritional or these or these exercise-based stimuli that make us bigger, stronger, or make us more endurance-related. Uh, what are the things that those our exercise and our and our nutrition are actually doing? Because once you know that, if I know exactly which molecule my endurance exercise is turning on, mm -hmm. now what I can do is I can look for different ways that I can turn it on. Okay. So the perfect example is strength training. When we do strength training, you do, yeah, you lift weights and you do sets and reps and you, you do a load. When I do, when I look at strength training, I'm seeing that the goal of strength training is to activate a specific kinase. And it's called the, M, the mammalian target of rapamycin. Um, and so this protein is a single protein that we had shown that when you activate it, you get bigger muscles. You then take that together. So we've identified a single protein. And now what you do is say, all right, how can you activate that? Oh, look, amino acids activate mTOR. Oh, so then if we did strength training with amino acids, now we can get more from our strength training. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you get a bigger, stronger muscle when you do that. So if you understand the molecule that your exercise is turning on in order to have the positive effect that you want, now what I can do is I can figure out two or three different ways that I can activate that or I can block an inhibitor, or I can do all of these different things so that I can get more from the same amount of exercise than somebody else would. Okay. Are you only looking at like, uh, I guess I'll say, um, physical ways to manipulate it, or are you also looking at like pharmacological ways to, to manipulate these different, um, so we can, things? we, we've done it in, in a bunch of different ways. So, so I'll give you an example of how it would go. So, so we're, you know, we're studying muscle growth and muscle growth, is something that is, is, you know, it's harder to do when you're in a caloric deficit. Mm -hmm. And so there's proteins that are activated by a caloric deficit. And so we, we worked with an animal that was a transgenic animal. It was a knockout animal. So it doesn't have that one of these proteins. And sure enough, when we did an overload, so a, a load uh, designed to make the muscle grow bigger, mm -hmm. if, if the animal didn't have that protein, 
it actually got a significantly bigger muscle from the same exercise as its litter mate that did have that protein. And so then what we do is we go and we say, okay, so when you inhibit this, you get a bigger muscle. We go to the literature, there's a, there's a drug that can inhibit that. So mm -hmm. all we do is now inject every day, we injected the animals with the drug while they were going through the overload. Sure enough, they got a 77% greater muscle hypertrophy than the ones that were injected with saline. Mm. Then you say, okay, now we know that this is working, so now let's look for natural products that can inhibit that same protein. And we found a bunch of natural products that inhibit the protein. We combined three of them, and now we've done a study where all we do is we feed animals those three natural products, we do the overload, and now instead of about 15% hypertrophy, which is what we would see in an in a animal that would get saline or salt water, when we give those three natural products, we get a 65% hypertrophy. Okay. So we're getting a big, big increase in the amount of muscle growth from the same exercise stimulus. So that's kind of how we would do it, is we'd go and we'd look for specific things that are controlling or, or regulating, decreasing. And then what we do is we find, how do we get around these? Because a lot of things that we're trying to do is to overcome evolution. Mm -hmm. We evolved to be endurance athletes. We didn't right. evolve to have huge muscles and, and lots of strength. We're relatively weak mm -hmm. relative to other animals, but we're really good at endurance. So if you're trying to grow muscles, you have to overcome the evolutionary pathway that we took, which was to become better endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. And so as you do that, what you're doing is you're having to figure out where those roadblocks were put up in order to make your muscles bigger. By finding those and then targeting them individually, you can actually see if you can get bigger muscles from the same exercise. Okay. So it's kind of like a, I guess I'll say almost a, a stair step of isolating the mechanism, figuring out, it seems, it seems like you said, it's like using like a, some kind of drug to inhibit whatever you don't want activated and then moving from there to more natural methods to, to achieve the same outcome, at least in your example. So, so go ahead and go back to where you said it's a stair step of isolating. So it's, it's okay. So it seems like it's a stair step of like, okay, you, first it's research phase in terms of what, you know, what are, what, what mechanisms are actually active in this particular scenario, whatever we're studying, and then figuring out how can we, you know, either enhance or inhibit whatever mechanism that is good or bad through you know pharmacological means and then stepping from there to can we manipulate it with you know i'll say like an apple or something you know a natural right. product is what you said um foods yeah right so it's like this whole whole process from from just figuring out what's from i don't know anything to okay what's going on and then taking those small steps all the way to okay, this is the most effective way to do this without, you know, injecting yourself with a drug. Exactly. So, and so what you're, and then what you're looking for is, you, and the reason that we do it is because, look, it's hard enough to get people to exercise. Mm -hmm. If they don't get any response from the exercise, they're not going to continue. Right. But if they suddenly say, oh, wow, look at how I'm getting a big effect, and they see their body changing, they see these things changing within them, they're much more likely to continue to exercise. Mm -hmm. So if you can do the exercise and pair it with something that's not harmful, that could promote them or let them do more of it, 
mm. or let them see that they're getting better at it sooner, that's a that's a spectacular thing. Um, I, I kind of want to jump to a, a little bit specific question about uh, M4, sure. which which you had discussed on a, a different show. Um, again, just in case I'm off the wall, feel free to just slap me and say I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I, I think I understood your so um, your at the time you were talking about uh, like through act through exercise activating mTOR to create muscle growth and how that can possibly inhibit its activation in other things like organ tissues like liver mm -hmm. is that correct yeah um, when I heard that it made me wonder about uh, I think you also mentioned in another talk about um, being active helps increase people's lifespans. And I was right. wondering if this this kind of uh, inhibition in those uh, organs and then promotion in the muscles is possibly like a cofactor for an increased lifespan, thinking about like cancer risk reduction and things like that. Sure, so it's a great question. So, so the first thing is that 30% of all people who die from cancer die because of the muscle weakness associated. Because as the cancer gets bigger, it's going to need more amino acids, more nutrients to grow. And so it, it actually stimulates muscle atrophy. So it, it breaks down muscle in a process called cachexia. So um, there's great studies done by Stephen Blair's group that show that if you're in the strongest third of the population, you're one quarter as likely to die from cancer. Mm -hmm. A lot of that's just because if you're stronger, you'll be able to survive the treatments because the treatments are, are to put your body into poison. When you're doing strength training, one of the things you do is you activate mTOR, as, as I mentioned before. And mTOR is a protein that's important in growing cells. And so if you think of growing cells, that's great if you're talking about muscle. It's bad if you're talking about a cancer because that's what a cancer needs to do to drive itself bigger. To make itself bigger, it needs to activate mTOR. And so, so what cancers are trying to do is they're trying to activate mTOR, and, and, and that's going to be important in growth. So when we do exercise... When we do exercise that is, has a high metabolic cost, what we're going to do is we're going to have this tendency to, to decrease. Our whole body is now in, a, in what we call a caloric deficit. And when we're doing that, we're going to have this big stimulus to decrease the activity of mTOR in the tissues around the body. So, so that's one thing. So if you were to go out, even if you were to do endurance exercise and you were to run Say you're going to run for, you know, a 20, you're going to go for an hour run. So you go out for your hour run, that's going to cause your liver and your fat cells and all these other tissues to have to change their metabolic state. Liver's got to produce glycogen or break down glycogen to glucose. It's got to regulate. While it's doing that, there's nice work that shows that as it does that, mTOR activity goes down. mTOR is inhibited when it's in this metabolic stress of exercise. Same thing is true in the fat cell, same thing is true throughout the body, or in most of the body. Interestingly, in the brain, mTOR is activated by something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a growth factor that helps our brain continue to develop. And so one of the things that happens, that is purported to happen, is that as you exercise, you get more brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and that turns on mTOR in the brain. So locally in the brain, you're turning it on. In the liver, in the kidneys, in the, in the fat, you're turning it off. And in the active muscle, if you're doing endurance exercise, you're going to decrease it a little bit. 
when you want to do strength exercise, we're going to increase it in the active muscles. And again, we're going to decrease it in the areas where all they sense is the stress, but they don't have the mechanical load that's going to give them the signal to grow. So, so what you're doing with exercise is you're modulating this. And then what we've recently realized is that that's the same thing you do with your diet. So we recently published a paper um, that showed that if, if you put mice onto a ketogenic diet, they live 13% longer than animals on a control diet. And the reason for this is that if we, we did, we, um, as the animals died, we would do an autopsy or necropsy. And what we realized is that eight out of 10 of the normal animals on a wild type chow, they die from cancer. When we open up the, the ones that die on the ketogenic diet, only two of those animals, two of the 10 animals we measured there actually died from cancer. And again, what you're doing on a ketogenic diet, you're removing carbohydrate. mTOR is stimulated by three things. The three things are load, and that's how we turn it on our muscles, and then metabolism. And the two other, the two parts of the metabolism, one is the amino acids, Specifically, the amino acid leucine turns on mTOR. The second one is insulin. So if you have low insulin because there's no carbohydrate in the diet, you only have one of the two dietary stimuli for, for mTOR. So you don't turn on mTOR as much in, in those tissues. And so, and then because you're doing exercise together with the, the amino acids, you're able to maintain the, the muscle mass. So you can turn the mTOR on in the muscle, but because you don't have the loading in all these other tissues, you don't turn on mTOR in the other tissues. So in the ketogenic diet, what we saw in these animals is that they had, um, as they got older, they had maintained their muscle function in age. They maintained their endurance in age. And we didn't see as many cancers in the non-muscular tissues. So I know... Um... Keto is very, very popular right now. Um, and I've spoken to several different like registered dietitians about it. Um, everybody seems to have a different opinion on it. Um, I have kind of a two-parter for you. Um, I think in the, another interview that I listened to where the interviewer was asking you about mTOR and, and all these kind of things and um, talking about, I think his question was, should we just try to get rid of, inhibit mTOR entirely, which mm -hmm. you've kind of already covered. Um, but you explained how a large part of the increased lifespan in the mice is that like 80% of lab mice die from cancer. And when you inhibit right. it, you inhibit the cancer. So part one of my question, I guess, is, um, how do we avoid, obviously it's easy for you because it's your job and you're very well versed in dealing with these things, but how do we as kind of laymen avoid applying kind of, um, I'll say like fallacies or fallacious arguments from lab research to real life. Right. And then um, is a, a ketogenic diet sustainable for, I guess I'll say the majority of life, not just in a, I'll say laboratory, uh, like setting. laboratory setting or, or, or yeah. like in a emergency cancer inhibiting kind of setting. Right. So those are both good questions. So the, the first one is, is, is basically, do we want to inhibit mTOR all the time? Right. Uh, and, and the answer there is that um, the only drug that or one of the best studied drugs that increases lifespan, again, in rodents, but it's also working now in dogs, is rapamycin, which is an inhibitor of mTOR. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, it's decreasing this 
it's decreasing cancer growth and it's and it's maintaining it, you know a lot of the functionality when you then try and translate that into people and that was that was one of the other things that you wanted to to talk about here right. Right. now what we have to do is we have to figure out okay how much is that how much of what we're seeing in animals is what we're seeing in people mm-hmm. so yes only 20% of people die from cancer on on average whereas 80% of of rodents die from cancer in the laboratory situation so so that's not necessarily going to be a direct comparison because right. if it's all about cancer there's a lot of people who aren't going to die from cancer so maybe they they're not going to have as much of a benefit from keto um, so, so what we're looking at here is a, a number of different things. So the first thing, when you're trying to decide whether something is good for a person, and you see, you're reading stuff in the literature and says, oh, look, the increased lifespan in a, in a rodent. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is you have to say, okay, are the same things that are killing the rodent killing me? If I have a family history of cancer, I might answer yes. Um, because that's that's definitely something that I'm worried about. If I'm much more about cardiovascular, my family all dies from heart attacks. Now I've got to mitigate that and say, well, maybe it's going to do something on the cancer front, but it might, you know, there, it's questionable whether it has any benefit for me as a as somebody who's who's on a cardiovascular who's got a more cardiovascular um, problem potentially. So so that's the first thing to do. The second thing to do is to to try and figure out how it's working and whether that's a good thing. All right. So when we talk about mTOR inhibition using diet, there's two ways to do it. You can do it either on a keto diet, which is to eliminate the carbohydrate component, Mm -hmm. or you can do it on a low protein diet, which is to eliminate the protein component. Right. Both of those two things in, in laboratory or in research animals, increase longevity. Um, Both of them, if you look at them for, for humans, we know that, in humans, the number one predictor of longevity is actually muscle strength. Mm-hmm. So your muscle strength at, at your midpoint of life is the greatest predictor of your longevity that we have. So it's if you're in the strongest third at, 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 at 40 in your mid-40s, you're two and a half times more likely to make it to 100 years of age than if you're in the weakest third. Um, you're also, and, and that's, it isn't, it is strength specific because if you're in the best aerobic fitness, if you're in the top third of aerobic fitness, only increases longevity by about 10%. Mm-hmm. So instead of two and a half fold, it's 10%. So, so there is something about strength that's really good for longevity. So now if we say, okay, we're going to eliminate, we're going to do a low protein diet to increase longevity. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to cost me muscle. Right. And over time, that's going to potentially in a human not be beneficial. You know, and it is one of the hardest things about any longevity studies is that all longevity studies have to be done in a model organism Mm -hmm. because a longevity study follows people or follows organisms until they die. Right. I I get my grants are five years at the longest. Yeah. I am not going to be able to follow people until they die with a five year grant. Right. It would have to be some kind of like lineage grant where like. You start it, you do it for 20 years, then you hand it off to a student and they exactly. do it for 20. Like it would be some kind of, I don't know. There, the there's, stu- there's a couple of studies that have done it. Like a, there's a Harvard longevity study right? Um, where it's just Harvard has done it or an organization like that or a national organization. There's, a, there's some studies on nurses in, in certain parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So you can do it. It's just really, really hard. 
So the first longevity, a lot of the longevity studies were done in, in C. elegans, these little tiny worms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, oh, look at these great things. They increase lifespan. But what kills a worm is actually their intestine becomes permeable and they, they just basically take up bacteria and they get an infection and they die. Okay. That's not how most of us die. Right. So again, early research is done in worms. You can smile at that and say, okay, that's interesting. But don't change your behavior because of it. Right. As you go up in organisms, as you get into rodents, now you say, okay, that's interesting. They're increasing longevity. Is it just because they're getting rid of cancer? Mm-hmm. If it is, then maybe that applies to you and maybe it doesn't. But if they're not affecting cancer rate and they're increasing longevity, the next question to ask is if they're increasing health span. Health span is how long you live but are still active. You can still do all of these things. You still maintain your strength and your endurance and your, your physical capabilities. And that's the next question. And that's where the, the ketogenic study that we did is interesting because the animals on the ketogenic study maintained their muscle strength, their muscle size, and their muscle endurance as they aged. And we, don't, we think that that's a result of mTOR again, but it's not all of the growth related. When you inhibit mTOR, what happens is because mTOR is mostly on synthesis, when it's activated, it makes things. Mm -hmm. When you inhibit it, what happens is you increase the breakdown of things. And one of the things you increase breakdown of is mitochondria. And what you do is you take out damaged mitochondria. So any mitochondria that is damaged is going to go through what's called mitophagy, which is the process where we remove something like a mitochondria, a big organelle. And when we do that, now we've broken down these mitochondria that aren't working well. If we always have mTOR on, you're not breaking down mitochondria that are working poorly. So you get a bunch of mitochondria that don't work so well. You produce free radicals. You you do all these other negative things. Mm -hmm. And as a result, your functionality goes down over time. So one of the other potential benefits of inhibiting mTOR is it when you inhibit it, you, you turn over proteins faster. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, now you have newer proteins that don't have as many changes in them. And just like, you know, if you, if you go out and you're going to go out and shoot baskets like I did for years, mm-hmm. when you have the old net and you've shot thousands upon thousands of shots, it starts to wear. It right. starts to get frayed. It doesn't work as well. You put on a new net, now everything works well. Everything, it flows better. The whole system works the way it's supposed to. All we're doing as we do this is we're turning over the proteins so that the net stays new all the time. And that's really one of the key components of, of, that, of that type of, of situation. And I, I'm not a proponent, but, you know, I do the research, but I, I'm not on a ketogenic diet. I, what I do is I use exercise in the same way. Right. Because what we're doing is we're trying to inhibit mTOR locally, get turnover of protein at a higher rate, and all of those things I can do by doing endurance-based exercises. So you, you can do it in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be one thing, and there's not one magic pill that everybody, you got to do this because it's the best. Right. It's a combination. I, that kind of makes you think about, it. maybe it's the same thing, so you maybe you can help me uh, clear this part up. I think you were talking about um, this kind of like signaling that leucine does that starts this cycle, and then you're talking about having to reduce your intake of leucine to actually turn the cycle off. Right. Um, is it the same cycle you're talking about? 
with so, Encore? To some degree, because a lot okay. of these things are regulated in such a way as when they go up, that's good. But if they stay up, it becomes bad. Okay. And the reason that it becomes bad is because our bodies try and get back to homeostasis. Right. And homeostasis is when something is on, we try and shut it down. When it's off, we try and turn it on. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to maintain this balance. Mm -hmm. And if we can maintain the balance, that's great. And so if we do something like lift weights that, inc that takes us out of balance, our body is going gonna, is gonna to undergo changes that are going to help it come back into balance. Mm -hmm. And it might shift the balance a little higher, but it's going to be a new, a new baseline. So when we eat leucine-rich protein, we get an increase in leucine in the blood. And that's great. It turns on mTOR and muscle turns on mTOR in all of the different proteins or cells in the body. But then what we really need is we need it to come down. Because if it doesn't come down, what happens is mTOR turns itself off. It's got a fail-safe switch because it knows, the body knows, the cells know, that if you turn on mTOR all the time, you get cancer. So what we have to have is a way that we turn on mTOR, but then we have to have a way that mTOR can turn itself off. In, okay. case, that, in case it is in case there is a problem. Right. And so when we eat these slow-release proteins that keep leucine at a very high level for a very long time, or you eat pharmaceutical-grade leucine and you keep eating it so that you keep leucine at the high level, mm. what happens is mTOR turns itself off. And in so doing, it actually decreases insulin sensitivity. It does all these other things as a way to shut the system down. Mm. So what we need is we need times when things get turned on, and then we need to give them time to turn back off again. Because if you don't give it time to turn off, you don't actually have the benefit of turning on in the first place. It's very similar to the research that's going on about sleep right now. Mm -hmm. Sleep is essential to recovery. It's the only thing that increases your rate of recovery and doesn't decrease the adaptation. Mm -hmm. So what we, do, what we do is we do all this stuff that loads the system and then we sleep. And if it was mental stuff, during sleep, we form new connections that allow us to learn and remember. If it was physical stuff, our body fixes any problems that came up, it regenerates all of the nutrients or, or you know, regrows the stores of, of carbohydrate and all of these other things. So we re replenish and we, we repair. And that's essentially what we're doing in our body. We turn on when we eat things and then we hopefully allow that system to turn off. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true with carbohydrates. If you turn it on consistently, you're going to get this insulin resistance. And a lot of it is because you've got the system trying to shut itself down. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's a lot of various, like, essentially cycles that go on that are necessary to, to kind of maintain either growth or homeostasis. This is a little bit more of a psychological or philosophical question. But since you are on the functional side, that's why I want to ask. Um, and I think you've worked with a number of athletes and possibly teams. How do you get people to cooperate with the things you want them to do to kind of maintain these cycles properly instead of, uh, I think you mentioned, you know, even uh, bodybuilders at some time waking up in the middle of the night trying to yeah. feed themselves because they're like so focused on like, this is my silver bullet is uh, food that they forget about sleep. Like how, how do you deal with that psychology to get people to do what is actually optimal for them? Yeah, it's a great question because it's, look, the knowledge is out there. Right. How to do, how to do these things, it's all over the place. Everybody, 
you know, part of it is trying to figure out what's what's good not what's good information, what's bad. But realistically, we know enough to get to produce perfect athletes. Okay. The problem isn't our inability, our lack of understanding. The problem is implementation. And that's where people who are who have different skill set than I do. I've got a postdoc here who's a who's a dietitian who works with a number of professional and Olympic teams and athletes. Mm -hmm. She has a completely different skill set that allows her to do that because what she can do is she has this these this social capacity that's outstanding. Like everybody, she's got all you know. She can do all of this social interaction at at incredibly high level. And that's a huge component of it because most people and athletes, they'll do things they believe in and they'll do things that they believe in because they believe that person. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily, they're not driven the same way that I would be driven on what's the evidence. Some athletes are, but a lot of athletes aren't. And so the, the real nuance comes from being able to come in and say, this is what we're doing. Um, I understand the basic principles, but what I, my job is here is to translate the science to the practitioner. Right. And that's what those people do, those dietitians, nutritionists, um, you know, performance directors, those type of roles mm -hmm. is to get such a rapport with the individual that the individual trusts them enough to do things that they that the that the expert knows are going to help them develop. Mm -hmm. We normally will start. Our principle is to start with an idea of, you know, 75, 25, 75% of the effect, or you can, you could have it as, as more 90, 10, but 75% of the effect of any diet, loading, nutrition, any type of thing like that is going to be just getting the general things right. Okay. If you eat vegetables and you eat this and you eat that, you're going to get 75% of it. The extra 25% comes from doing things right, but at the right time and, and kind of changing things at different periods or points in the day. So if we, there's a great, there's a great, there's a great example of this in work from John Hawley, where he had people, endurance athletes, they would, they were, um, most of them were triathletes. So they would do multiple, multiple uh, training sessions a day. Right. What he did is he had this, the people have the exact same amount of carbohydrate in the day. But in one group, what he did is he had uh, them taking all of their carbohydrate before their last training session of the day. Okay. And then they would have a dinner that would have no carbohydrate in it. They would sleep and then they'd get up in the morning and they'd do their first training session before they ate anything. In the other group, they had the same amount of carbohydrate. They just had that last meal after the training or the last meal after the training bout had carbohydrates in it. Okay. So they replenished their glycogen. The result was they trained that way for a number of weeks and that the ones who had the glycogen or had the, the carbohydrate restriction, so they didn't eat carbohydrate after their last training and they did their, they slept in a glycogen depleted state and did their first training session in the glycogen depleted state those people had a 3% improvement in performance. Okay. Exact same amount of carbohydrate, 3% improvement in performance. And we say 3% like, oh, who cares? You know, at the yeah, last, at when the London Olympics, it, right, yeah. but at the London Olympics, the, the triathlon was won in a photo finish. 
Right. You know, a three percent difference would have been, you know, that that's, that's essentially minutes. two minutes. Yeah. You know, so that's a huge, huge difference. So so these differences just by changing little things. And then the idea is, as you're saying, can you stack them? If I do that together with this over here and I get a three percent here and a one percent here and a point five percent here, does that give me four and a half? Does that give me four? Where do I where do I go? Right. And so those are the intricacies, because the reality is that um, having people, we, we get bombarded with information. And as athletes, we're trying to do the best things. We're trying to be healthy. We do things that we think are healthy that are actually inhibiting our performance. Mm -hmm. The example I give is, is high doses of vitamins. So we know that if you take high doses of vitamin C and vitamin E, you can actually block endurance adaptations. So if I'm in, a, in the base phase and I'm trying to build my endurance capacity and I'm popping lots of vitamin C and E, I'm actually going to get from the same exercise that my, my training partner is getting, I'm actually adapting less. So that training partner is actually getting more of a stimulus from the training. Those types of small things that you can turn those dials, they make a huge difference. But really, if that's that 25%. Mm -hmm. 75% is just getting the basics. Eat your meals, recover, uh, sleep well, have, have sufficient protein. All of those things, that's your 75%. The 25% is a little bit of how and what and, and those little perfect things that you can get right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm lost here. A couple more questions before we run out sure. of time here. Um, you did bring up this earlier. Uh, you kind of talked about like endurance activity, um, I think you said before in increases intelligence or increases brain activity and strength training typically increases longevity. Um, is there, have you figured out, I guess I'll say a scientific way or a lab tested way to, to get an optimal mix of those? That's a great question. So, so I don't even think there, that, so basically when we talk about endurance building, um, building and learning and memory, and also improving cardiovascular function. We're talking about things that doesn't actually take a ton of cardiovascular work. Okay. You know, we're talking about if you do, you know, one study showed that if you did, um, if you did eight, if you participated in sports eight times a month, that was enough to dream like one third your risk of cardiovascular failure, okay. heart attack. If you, but it's not even to do that much. You can eat, if you were in the population of individuals who cycled in Copenhagen, if you were the one, one of the people who cycled faster, your cardiovascular risk went down by about threefold. So, so even just, you don't need a lot there. So what you would do is you would do your, you could still easily do three plus sessions of endurance a week. Most, most of what we're looking for is true endurance sessions where you're actually going out and working at a very intense level. Okay. Most of the time you're looking to do six to seven days a week where you're getting at least 30 minutes of regular activity. That's more for the, for the general population for, for an athlete. What we're looking to do is we're looking to actually um, get three plus times a week of endurance. And then twice a week, we're looking to get strength. Um, strength training in twice a week, training, you know, especially if we're training for health, I'm going to train to failure, lift a heavy weight, go to failure twice a week. That's all you need as far as your strength mm -hmm. that, you know, that takes 15, 20 minutes to do. 
And then as far as the endurance, now what we're doing is we're, we're trying to increase the endurance load. We're, doing, we're, we're setting a baseline minimum of three times a week at a, a, where you're really trying to push yourself on the endurance component. If you can do those things, you're going to have the, a lot of the benefits of both worlds. Okay. So, so, so that's where we're looking. Um, it's, just, it's just always like, it, I always wonder about the actual, um, I'm going to say requirements of, you know, cause like we're talking about, like you said, it's not that much to say endurance activity. It's not like people need to be like me and we go work out, you know, 10, 12, 15 hours a week on an endurance right. activity. You know, that's, that's way, way more than, you know, the average person needs. Right. Um, but I think sometimes it, when the average person would hear, oh, I need to do an endurance activity, they think about, oh no, I got to go like, train for a half marathon or something like that's way beyond yeah. what's necessary to gain the health benefits right. um, of it. The health benefits almost always come from going from nothing to a little bit. Okay. The amount that you get from going from a little bit to a lot is much, much less. Right. You know, whether it's vitamin C, it's like six milligrams that you need in order to synthesize collagen and not get scurvy. Mm -hmm. But you know, taking thousands of milligrams, that's not going to give you a greater benefit. So you go up this really steep curve to get the health benefit. And then it kind of plateaus and is very, it's very shallow curve. The same thing is true for activity. If we take somebody who's completely inactive and we get them to walk 15 minutes a day, mm -hmm. they're going to have this massive effect on their health where they're just going to go, their health readouts are going to go just crazy. Yeah. But then once you get to there, Getting them to the next level is not, it's not as easy as, oh yeah, well, I did 15 minutes. Now I'm just going to do 20 and I'm going to have this, it's going to continue up this. No, it plateaus relatively quickly. Yeah. It doesn't plateau as quickly as, as some other things, but it's now going to, the slope is now much lower. Mm -hmm. And so the effect of, for health is relatively low. The effect for, for to really having a performance impact, you, it, it, it takes a, a lot more, but yeah. The reality is for most people, and the, the other thing to remember is that what we tend to do is we tend to say, our old people need to, you know, they need to slow down. The reality is we actually need to exercise more frequently as we get older. Because, mm -hmm. you, you know, as a, as a guy who used to be 17, 18 years old, I ate all kinds of crap. I ate everything yeah. in the world, and I could exercise maybe twice a week and be in great shape. Right. As you get older, you get to like your 30s and your 40s. Well, now I can't eat. No, I can't eat those things because now I know that I'm going to add weight. And I know that, you know, man, if I don't exercise more, I'm going to show that my performance is going to drop. As you get older and older, you actually need more frequent exercise. And there's we've got some data that shows that one of the things that happens as we get older is that when we're young, we have a long protein synthetic response in response to resistance exercise. As we get older, that comes back down to baseline sooner. And so the result is that you either have to exercise more or you have to really target your nutrition around your exercise. But it does seem like as we get older, we need more, not less. Yeah, yeah. Um, that actually leads in well. This is a question I ask um, every single person I talk to this year. Um, just because it's a, it, it's a question that consumes everybody, um, and it is kind of like a baseline for everybody. I like to ask, um, if after a hard workout, um, you're going to eat some kind of recovery food, if you only get to choose one food for recovery for the rest of your life, what do you end up choosing? Milk. 
Just regular milk? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. You can do chocolate milk, but it has to be high quality chocolate. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, milk is, you know, this is in our family, our family, we go to the, we go to a store, we go to a special store because we buy four gallons of milk a week for the three of us. Okay. So, so we drink a lot of milk and, and, you know, the reality is it's the, the fastest evolving gene in our body is the gene that allows us to drink milk. Um, that tells us that there was a really big benefit to it. And one of the things is it's a leucine rich food. It has sufficient sugars that allow us to, to regenerate anything that we've lost. And it provides nutrients to, to the microbiota that are quite important. You know, one of, the, one of the great things about milk is it has very special sugars in it um, that we don't digest very well, but that our bacteria actually digest really well. Um, and so, so now what we're doing is we're feeding our whole system. And so, so yeah, for me, milk is the perfect recovery food. I'd love to get you together with, like I said, I've talked to a couple of guys doing work with the microbiome and studying the microbiota. I'd like to get you all together for a conversation about how that all comes together. Cause I'm, I think that would be probably pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. It's best known in, in neonates. There's a group here at Davis who, who studied newborns and if they were born um, from C-section, what they found is they couldn't digest milk. And because during delivery, uh, you get inoculated with. I'm still here if you're there. Uh, so during delivery, you get inoculated with with bacteria that actually are absolutely essential to break down the carbohydrates in, in human milk. Okay. So we can't we can't digest it. And so one of the things that happens if you're delivered by C-section is you can't drink mother's milk unless you get a product that they developed, which is basically the bacteria that you would have gotten through vaginal delivery that just gets put into, into the system. As soon as you get inoculated with that bacteria, now you can drink the milk because the carbohydrate is broken down by the bacteria and that frees up the energy. So, so that's, the best, that's the best example of how we understand the system working together. The other really important thing about milk is that it has fat um, and the, the milk fat. So I drink whole fat milk and those milk fats, there's a guy down in, in New Zealand who's shown that if you just give the milk fats, you actually see an increase in muscle mass and strength as well. Okay. So there, it's the, the whole composite of the food that's really important. Love the answer. Love the love the uh, explanation. I'm sure we could go for probably another hour. You're like, I know you're full of information, but uh, try to be sensitive to your time. Um, That's great, Keith. If people want to see, like, follow your research, see any more uh, talks you do, where can they find you? Yeah. So, so the easiest thing to do is I'm on Twitter. I go at my my handle is at Muscle Science. So I got in fairly early, so I got a really good handle. So, okay. so that that works well. Um, and I. I'll, every once in a while, I'll post some some kind of little videos, or or I'll I'll at least link out to different research that I think is cool, or that we've done, or that is that is really uh, interesting for this space. So that's probably the easiest way. And people can DM me from there and and ask me questions if they have them. Good deal. Uh, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, you're welcome. No worries. Take care.